This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Welcome to Positive Parenting on the American Forces Network. I'm Armin Brat. We all know how incredibly complex the human brain is, and for centuries we believed that the price we paid for our brain being so complex was that, compared to other organs, it was fixed and unregenerative, meaning that it was unable to recover any kind of mental abilities that were lost because of damage or disease or even aging. But my guest for this part of today's show turns that belief, well, on its head. He explains how the brain's capacities are highly dynamic and how its very sophistication can make possible a unique and very gentle kind of healing. And he's got all sorts of wonderful stories to tell us about the people that he's met as he was doing research for the book. There was the woman who was missing a third of her brain who went on to earn two graduate degrees even though doctors predicted that her brain would never develop. And there was a man whose multiple sclerosis symptoms were reversed after getting treated with a cutting-edge machine that essentially resets the brain. And then there were the patients who were able to overcome years of chronic pain that hadn't been able to be treated with anything else, and people who were able to recover from strokes that should have made them never able to move or function ever again. But by using natural, non-invasive techniques, things like lasers and light and sound and vibration and movement, cutting-edge doctors have been able to actually change the brain, and not only that, to heal it. And it all starts right after this. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Norman Deutsch, who's the author of The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. Norman, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about, before we get into to, to this book, the previous book called The Brain That Changes Itself, because that, that really brought out some fascinating research that kind of turned a bunch of things on their head, which was, everybody always thought that the brain kind of stops developing in the late teens, early 20s, and that's it. That's, that's the end of it. Yeah, some people thought it stopped developing earlier. You know, the brain was seen as a kind of an electrical machine, and its circuits were said to be hardwired. That's a metaphor. But clinicians ended up taking that far too seriously um, and saw that when patients didn't get better for a variety of things, both neurological and psychiatric, they would say, well, the problem is hardwired by which they meant something like they had a ge it was genetically predetermined and the genes um, specified how that person's circuits would unfold and those limitations. The brain was seen as fixed. And what the, f the brain that changes itself did was bring together all the research there was to show that the brain isn't fixed. Um, its circuits, in fact, not only can at times change, that's how they generally work. They work by changing, uh, reforming themselves, changing the connections between neurons, the nerve cells in the brain, and so on. And that book talked about some clinical instances of it. For instance, a girl born with half a brain who um, you would think such a person would be, you know, in a hospital bed on life support, but who, uh, and she was missing her left hemisphere where, where speech is largely processed, uh, at least certain aspects of speech. And she was 
yet she could speak and she had opinions and had a job and feelings and, and so on. How is this possible if the brain's like a machine where each part of the machine performs a single mental function in a single location in the brain? Uh, the book showed the cultural and clinical relevance of this neuroplastic revolution. Neuroplasticity is the, the term for all of this. Right. Uh, how did people even discover this? Because I'm sort of thinking that, you know, the, the old expression, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. It, uh, in research, sometimes what you think you know dictates what you find out in experiments. I mean, how, how, so. So how did and they get past that? Yeah, um, yeah. Basically, there, were, there in fact had been some people who argued that the brain might be plastic. And by, let me just say what I mean by neuroplastic. It means that the structure, it's the property of the brain that allows it to change its structure and its function in response to activity and mental experience. So what you do, what you think, what you imagine, what you perceive, what you feel, changes brain structure. And in this new book, I show that that can be used to address some very significant neurological and psychiatric conditions. Now, the block was... There were several parts to the block to seeing this, because it's a fair question. If the brain is plastic and always has been, why didn't we see it? Technologically, we had to be able to make microscopic movies, because the change takes place at the microscopic level, and our tools were just not developed to do so. And um, there, were, there was one tool that could do it, sort of, which is called a microelectrode, where you stick literally a pin-like thing in beside a single neuron and listen to it firing or, and so on. But very few people actually performed that, those experiments, and those who did and saw, did them over time and saw that there were changes to the brain processing areas initially were disbelieved because it didn't fit with this machine-like model of the brain. And the fact is that people had pretty poor prognoses for a lot of brain problems. The problem was, one of the reasons I argue they had a poor prognosis is because um, physicians believing that they couldn't be helped didn't encourage right. really enough activity right. after a stroke right. and so on. And so it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what I found really fascinating when I started reading the book was that the way that you talk about things like Parkinson's, what's one of the first examples in the book, where you, we all think of Parkinson's as being a brain issue with the dopamine problems in the brain. And what you talk about, though, is that it's, it's a pathway that works both ways, that you can change the physical reactions, the tremors and things like that by boosting dopamine by having a basically kind of like a, a pacemaker in the brain with dopamine. But you can also, as, as one of the folks that you followed around for a while showed, you can work it the other way by effect, by doing things with the movement, you can actually rebuild the brain. Mm -hmm. Talk about that one a little bit. I sure. think it's just Let such a fascinating idea. Stroke, and then I'll get to it with Parkinson. Okay. So there are a number of illnesses that can be helped using these techniques. Parkinson's, uh, symptoms can be diminished, as can MS symptoms can be diminished. Stroke functioning can be radically improved in some cases. Um, chronic pain symptoms can be diminished. Autistic symptoms can be radically diminished in some cases. Attention deficit disorder, learning disorders, um, and brain injuries. There are five new interventions for brain injuries. And a number of them involve 
using the body to address the brain. So in the 19th century, um, a, at the beginning of the 19th century, if a person had a stroke and couldn't speak properly or couldn't use their right leg, they experienced the problem in speaking or in, in the leg. But a number of discoveries, mid-19th century, showed that the problem was actually in the brain areas that controlled the leg or the brain areas that controlled speech, not as the patient experienced the problem. This was because we started to do autopsies on people that had strokes, basically. And science in the 19th and 20th century developed all these brain imaging techniques and Started to, you start to increasingly hear people saying, you know, you are your brain. Your brain controls everything, and so on. And we had this view of an imperial brain kind of emerge. And it, scientists sometimes even started to talk as though the body was there as infrastructure for the brain, because if your self is in your brain, then what's the body there for? To feed the brain, to, to, help, it all, to help it out. Now, I argue in this book that this is just spectacularly wrong. First of all, in evolutionary terms, it's not as though there were brains sitting around and then they evolved bodies to support them. In fact, there were bodies, and over time, brains evolved long, long, long after bodies did. If anything, the brains evolved to support the bodies, to coordinate them, and so on and so forth. And of course, once they did evolve, evolution's a very complex two-way process, and bodies and brains to some degree changed to interact with each other. But it's really only in anatomy textbooks and in the abstractions taught to medical students that brain and body are separate. In reality, the brain, you know, seamlessly is connected to the body through the peripheral nervous system and through the senses. And I describe a number of treatments where, for instance, okay, one of the things that I, I've found, if I could just go back, is that in many forms of brain disturbance, either brain injury or brain diseases, including some psychiatric conditions. Um, once you have a, a difficulty with the brain, people often thought that what happened is brain cells would die, so that if you only had 90% use of your leg, it meant that 90% of the brain cells or the, the cables coming from the brain cells were in some way damaged. What I show happens by reviewing a lot of the electrical data from various diseases in the brain is something very different. Some brain cells die. Some cells that were getting input from those brain cells radically have that input cut off, and so they can't function as well immediately. Um, they're almost in a state of shock. Other cells are alive but sick, and so they're firing at irregular rates which are not helpful. They create noise in the brain. And many cells are receiving those signals that are fired at irregular rates. So they're not functioning well. You have what I call a noisy brain. And it is once the brain is noisy, it's sort of like a, a heart that's firing you know, an arrhythmia. It, it can't really get the blood forward. Well, the noisy brain can't get work done. And the circuitry in the use-it-or-lose-it brain starts to waste away or atrophy because it's not functioning well. Now, 
when it atrophies, you try to use your limbs, say if you've had a stroke, for the first six weeks when there's a lot of inflammation and chemical chaos in the brain, and you can't use it. And then the brain learns you can't use that limb, and the circuit goes more dormant still. Right. Right. So what the, I know this is a complicated explanation, but the brain's the most complicated object in the universe. What you can do is you can start moving limbs and ask the person to observe the sensations they have when they're moving their limbs. Right. And you can stimulate some of those dormant circuits. Uh, and then you have them try to use their conscious will to move whatever they can in that limb. Right. And Edward Taub developed a therapy called constraint-induced therapy which has been able to help many, many stroke patients. Which is putting, kind of putting it in a cast so you can't move it. What he does is he discovered that when a person tries to move their stricken limb, it doesn't work, so they start favoring the other limb. And in the user-to-lose-it brain, the, the circuitry for the stricken limb weakens still further, and the circuitry for the healthy limb strengthens. So he won't let you use your healthy limb. He puts hmm. it in a cast and then he trains up the stricken limb. And he can do this 50 years after the initial stroke. And areas of the brain adjacent to the, the brain-damaged areas then take over. Um, this is just one example. There's 450 right. papers on this form of therapy, which I really wish would be better known, um, showing its efficacy. Talking to Norman Deutsch, who's the author of The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Norman Deutsch. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brunt. We're continuing, if you're just joining us, our discussion with Norman Deutsch, who's the author of The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity. want to switch gears just a little bit, and a lot of this, pretty much everything you're saying in the book is well footnoted, and there's, there's studies in there if you're inclined to, to look at those kinds of things, which I hope a lot of people will be. But from the perspective of parents who have got a child with ADD or a neurological disorder of some kind, one of these things that can possibly be helped, a brain-based issue. How can we help our kids get exposed to this? Because I, I have a, a, a daughter who's got a, a neurological thing in her one, one of her feet, and I mentioned the laser uh, techniques to her neurologist who had never heard of them. And I thought, wait, this is just wrong. I mean, these people should know this. So how can parents get this research out there to the people who might well, be able to help I them. I mean, in some ways it's easier than it's ever been. Um, you know, people sometimes say to me, well, if these things are so good, why, why isn't everybody using them? I'm sorry to say we do not live in a medical utopia <laughs> where um, breakthroughs are immediately discovered, immediately distributed to all healthcare professionals, um, and so on and so forth, and immediately well-known. Within healthcare, there's various rivalries of various approaches. I mean, even some conditions, there are rivalries between whether, you know, the surgeons will recommend one thing and the internists will recommend another thing. So people do what they've been taught or what they read about. These are all, all do not, none of them involve medication or surgery. And, you know, I mean, most medical journals are, are funded by ads from drug companies, and that reflects, you know, practice reflects that over 
over time. Um, but it's easier than ever before. Um, if you if you see something in, in one of my books and it's of interest to you, there are footnotes to these things. Um, you know, some of them have lots of studies, like lasers have about 2,000 studies. If someone was, and I, I list some of the crucial ones, you can copy it and bring it to your doctor or get on the Internet and find, you know, co- contact mm-hmm. the people in the book and find out if they've trained someone in your area right. or you may have to travel there. Now, what about something that's probably not going to be covered by insurance, which is the, one of the other issues having to do with our health care system? And there's this fascinating thing, and I cannot remember what it's called right this second, but you'll enlighten us, the, the thing that you put under your tongue. Right, the that, ponds. Yeah, talk well, about that because the, many that... Many of the interventions I describe are energy-based. Remember I said that in many conditions you get a noisy brain. And there's versions of the noisy brain in learning disorders, autism, many of these childhood disorders that uh, parents are very concerned about. Um, anyway, the, the way the, the PONS is right now being studied for Parkinson's, MS, traumatic brain injury, um, and I'm, I'm leaving in... Well, that's okay. That, that, anyway, that's that's I'm big anyway. I'm leaving a few yeah. of them out. But, I mean, many, many more. But basically... The, the, the tongue is about an inch and a half in front of the brain stem, which is a low level of the brain, but has many, many important things for regulating temperature, the nervous system, incoming sensation, um, and so on. And you put this device on your tongue. Your tongue is moist, and the device has some about 144 tiny, tiny little electrodes, plates on them. And when they fire, it feels like a champagne bubble popping. They learned to make it fire at a particular rate so that the touch receptors on the tongue feel they are being turned on. And there are 15,000 pathways on the tongue to the brain stem. It's a great way to talk to the brain. And you basically can use it to resynchronize the firing of the noisy brain. And that's how it helps a number of these conditions. Now, but you you mentioned parents and kids. I mean, for instance, autistic kids have a very noisy brain uh, in in many, many respects. Um, They have lots of inflammation through their bodies and their brains, and their brains are often underconnected in some ways, and many of them will cover their ears when they go into a room. They find sounds just utterly overwhelming. They can't process it properly and filter it properly. Right, everything's coming in at the same volume, whether it's right next to you or across the room, yeah. And they can't make out the frequencies of human speech easily. Instead, they get very low frequencies that are threatening, like the sounds of predators, like in the movie Jaws. That's one of the reasons why they're so distressed uh, in rooms or distressed by humming low machines like refrigerators and so on. What we can do is we use filtered, modified music to um, do several things. One, very few people know this, but there's a branch of what's called the vagus nerve, which is involved in the calming part of the nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system, which uh, is attached to the ear. And the proper frequencies going to the ear can actually trigger a calm state. You can also trigger them to begin to zoom in on the frequencies of human speech and and filter out those low frequencies. A healthy ear and brain have an auditory zoom in them. 
such that when you go into a party and it sounds like it's all noise, within a few seconds you can go from that noise to focusing in on particular conversations. That's your auditory zoom. Autistic kids don't have that working properly. When we train that up, we find remarkable things happen that have nothing to do with noise. They're no longer hearing those very low sounds, and we know how to use the calming sounds. So that a number of these autistic children have the following response. They stop being hypersensitive to sound. They are no longer in fight or flight constantly because they're not hearing the threatening sounds. And, you know, a boy, I'm thinking of one I, I saw fairly recently, goes over after two days of treatment and hugs his father for the first time. This is a boy who was withdrawn, and then his language development starts to pick up. So you can have these incredible interventions through the, sen the senses and energy, basically talking to the brain in its own language. And ADD, there are ways of calming the brain right. and awakening right. it to focus properly using sound. And I describe it, something called neurofeedback as well, which can do that. Well, let me let me just take you to a different thing. Have you heard of a thing called OnDemed? No. Uh, okay. OnDemed? Uh, O-N-D-A-M-E-D, -E I think is what it is. A friend of mine is a, an MD. Has, she's a functional medicine specialist. And uh -huh. she's got, it's a, it's like a magnetic fields or electromagnetic fields. And you, it's a machine that seems kind of like magic in a way, but it, it, you were talking about frequencies and kind of got me thinking about that, that you can adjust the the, the magnetic fields of the, the frequencies that this machine is putting out to deal with certain kinds of problems. And, and brain, she's, Like brain problems? Yeah, I mean, she's had great luck using that kind of thing for addictions, for overcoming smoking, and, and people have got you know, one or two sessions and they don't have any kind of cravings at all. And she's also had it with ADD and other kinds of things, I mean, the kinds of things that parents just get completely freaked out about. Mm -hmm. Well, no, I haven't heard of that one, but you see, to me, these things don't sound magical. Um, and they, they sound magical. To, 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 they no they no longer sound magical. Let me say that they sound magical to people who have been raised with the doctrine of the unchanging brain that think that the brain circuitry is fixed and that there's nothing you can do to influence it. And the other th problem with our view of the brain is it's we've so emphasized the chemical nature of it that um, we have underemphasized the fact that the major lingua franca. The common language of nerve cells is electrical firing. And every time you have an electrical current, there's if you change it, there's a magnetic field around it that changes. And you can, you can affect, this is what electromagnetism is about. You can, you can change, you can use elect, change electrical currents to change magnetic fields, and you can change magnetic fields to change electrical currents. Um, and so there are a number of magnetic interventions um, that are being used now for things like depression and so on um, and for stroke um, that you can use to inhibit parts of the brain or excite parts of the brain. Now, Norman, what would your, we only have just like less than a minute left, but just really quickly, what would your advice be to a parent who is, is hearing about this? I mean, besides going on the Internet, which <laughs> I kind of steer people away and many times uh, from going on the Internet because there's so much crap on there. But how do, you, how do you get the basic information besides picking up the book? Well, I, I think you're, you're right. I mean, you're asking an author who's just spent eight years of his life putting <laughs> this information in an organized way in a book. So 
I would say you have to invest as much time in trying to understand these treatments as you would if you were trying to figure out what stereo to get. You know, you have to, do, you know, it's, it's best to do the reading and understand the concepts yourself. And then, ideally, I think you want to work with a healthcare professional who um, is a combination of being extremely conscientious and open-minded and curious, um, not the, the eye-rolling type that when they hear about something they've never looked at, they roll their eyes. You know, when you roll your yeah. eyes, you don't see what's in front of you. So you mentioned you have some right. colleague or friend who's into functional medicine. These are people who are interested in, in and have mastered mainstream medicine, but have gone on to look at some of the techniques beyond medication and surgery that people are finding very useful. So they can be very helpful. Yeah, i gotta got to stop you right there. Norman Doidge, the author of The Brain's Way of Healing, Remarkable Discoveries and Recoveries from the Frontiers of Neuroplasticity, and Doidge is D-O-I-D-G-E, and, and it is a great book, and it's fully documented, and, and you will find it riveting. Norman, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and we're going to be talking toys with Sam Fuse. It's still kind of cold in a lot of parts of the country, and weather is coming around, coming around. We're, we're getting close to spring, close to summer, but still, still there's a lot of uh, weather incidents, and people are going to have to be spending some time playing inside. And this week, wanted to take a look at some of the things that we thought would be fun ways, if, you've, if you're trapped inside, or even if you're not trapped, to just hang out. And it's going to be those rainy days. There are. Tell us about the, the fashion doll coupe. That was actually a pretty cool toy. Um, it's bigger than, than you might think it is. I hope that the photo did it justice. Um, so when you think about your traditional vehicles for, let's say, Barbie, they're pretty sleek. They tend to fit the dolls and the dolls alone. Um, and they're kind of on the pricey side, which, you know, you, you pay for your name brands. The coolest thing about the Fashion Doll Coupe from American Plastic Toys was that it was $5. That just seemed so incredibly I reasonable. Know. And yeah. it comes in a, in a blue Jeep style as well. It fits pretty much any classically like Barbie-sized dolls or larger, as you can see from the things that we chose to put in it. Yeah. Um, my son is a boy, so we don't tend to have tons of Barbies laying around the house, although we have a couple, you know, testing products. Well, you could fit some Ninja Turtles in there, certainly, you with all their You absolutely could fit Ninja Turtles in there. <laughs> we, we did fit Ninja Turtles in there, and it glides smoothly. There are no problems with it. Like, you think, oh, $5, obviously it's going to have problems. It's not going to, you know, wheel around. It's going to have jammed up wheels. It's going to be a pile of junk. Let me tell you, my son is not gentle. He's seven, and at this age, he is really putting toys to the test it's fine there's it there's no wear and tear visible on the car it rolls around like the pricey models and kind of in the theme of having lots of room for stuff there was this dollhouse this fashion doll delightful dollhouse i was amazed when the He's box huge. showed up the box you know the little girl standing up there in the picture on on the website on uh, parentsofplay.com and the thing is taller than she is it's three stories and mm -hmm. there's plenty of room for even the american girl sized dolls absolutely to be in there. it's a it's a big dollhouse and you can set it up in several different ways you can set it up lengthwise you can set it up in with three tiers you can do a lot of different things with that and it's open on all the sides so wherever your your child decides to go in 
and play from it. It's not closed off in the back or on several sides like most dollhouses are. Like, you don't have to push it up against the wall. You can stick it in the middle of the playroom if you choose to. For the house, from American Plastic Toys, it's $100, and it comes with this huge dollhouse and the things that go inside, beds, chairs, a bathtub, like all these things that you usually have to go out and buy extra, and that's not cheap. No. Anybody who's ever looked at or purchased a dollhouse will tell you all those things are extras, and those extras are the dollhouses themselves are not cheap, and then the extras are an arm and a leg, and you end up having to build up over extended periods of time. A hundred dollars, bam, you're done. Yeah. Um, the only thing you have to provide is the child and the dolls. <laughs> if you don't have a big playroom, maybe you have an apartment or a smaller house. If there's one that's a little larger than half the size for fifty dollars, also comes the Excellent. insides. And so both of those from American Plastic Toys, they're both really low tech. And the other couple of things we, that we had that we were looking at this week were much more high tech, and they were done both of them by Hexbug. The first one was the Tony Hawk circuit board. And if you are a skateboarder or have any interest in skateboarding at all, you probably know who Tony Hawk was or is and what a half pipe Don't is and a quarter off. pipe and all that stuff. And I, I, I just thought this was so much fun to, to set the thing up and to have this skateboard going all over the place. It was, it was tough, though, to, to do the grinding down the rail thing. The, the one odd thing was to be using this remote control to be sh- firing this skateboard all by itself. It just it looked kind of like a ghost skateboard going by itself because there's no figure on it. It's just the skateboard, which has nice uh, the sandpaper grip on the top so you can actually use it with your fingers if you want to, which a lot of people are doing these days. You had a chance to play with that, right? Um, Actually, we haven't had a chance to put that one together yet. I actually don't think we got that one. I'll we send did you get the mine. shark. You did get the Aquabots. Good. Okay, yeah. tell us about that. You tell us about that. Well, they're like plastic fish, right? But they've got mm-hmm. a little computerized thing in it, and you put them in, and they, I mean, they they stop, they shut themselves off after a couple minutes if you leave them alone, and then you can wake them up by tapping on the glass, which, of course, if you've been to an aquarium, you know you're not supposed to tap on the glass, but you can do it at home. That's okay. These and, fish don't mind. They don't have ears. And then there was the shark, and the shark, interestingly enough, is completely low-tech. It's just on a slide, and so when you move the shark down, the jaws close. And the object of the thing is when these little fish are swimming around, and they they dart around pretty quickly, you move that down and you're trying to snap up the fish. It's actually a lot harder than you would think. It's really silly, but it's fun, you know? He had a great time with it, and he really loves the aquabots. I'm sorry, he really loves the uh, aquafish. Um, and he has a really good time with those. He loves them. He brings them into the tub, even though you're not really supposed to put soapy stuff on them. But the shark thing he had, he was not able to, to nab the fish at all. It just never happened. But again, really? he, he's young. He made a big mess. He had a great time making a mess. And um, he had a great, he loves it. He just hasn't been able to snap up the fish yet. Well, you got to put a couple more fish in there then. I think that, that will probably help. <laughs> increase the chances. Increase, exactly. Increase the chances. There are lots of reviews of a lot more toys and games at parentsatplay.com. Check us out, definitely, and let us know what you'd like to have us review. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play column. But don't go anywhere quite yet. There's still more positive parenting to come in just a sec. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hello and welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I'm Armin Brott. Every year, 
an estimated one and a half million children, that's one out of six, are diagnosed with autism, Asperger's syndrome, ADHD, dyslexia, or obsessive compulsive disorder. Diagnosis rates are climbing at really what is an alarming rate, and yet the methods that are used by doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and behavior specialists to diagnose and treat these conditions have barely changed in half a century. Psychiatric drugs, which are prescribed to more than 20% of elementary school children today, don't cure the problem. They only disguise the symptoms. So parents are advised to learn coping techniques to manage the problem because, they're told, neurobehavioral dysfunctions can get better, but they will never disappear. But is that really true? In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an internationally known chiropractic neurologist who's got a completely different understanding of the cause of these conditions. He says it's a disconnection between the left and right sides of the child's developing brain. And his treatment method that's called the Brain Balance Program has achieved real, fully documented results that have dramatically improved the quality of life for children and, of course, their families. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about this new drug-free approach to dealing with brain-based problems in childhood when positive parenting continues right after this. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Robert Melillo, who's the author of Disconnected Kids, the groundbreaking brain balance program for children with autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and other neurological disorders. Dr. Melillo, thanks for joining us. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to being with you. Let it, let's start from the, from the beginning. Uh, it's, you, talk, you talk about in the book about how really the way that we've been dealing with these brain-based disorders, ADHD and, and autism and things like that, really hasn't changed a lot in the last 50 years. And you're right. looking at things from a completely different perspective, which is that there's a, a disconnect, as the name of the book is, Disconnected Kids, between the hemispheres of the brain. Talk about just about that a little bit. Yeah, you know, it really all started with me with the question of uh, what is actually ADHD from a neurological perspective? Um, early 90s, uh, had someone who asked me to do some research. Her son was diagnosed with ADHD and she was a friend of the family. And, and my, you know, I've been a clinician for over 30 years and my specialties have always been in neurology and rehabilitation. And I've been teaching uh, clinical neurology and brain uh, development for 20 years. So I knew a lot about the brain, but when I first started looking into ADHD, um, I couldn't find anybody that could tell me what the problem was. Nobody knew what was actually happening in the brain. And for me, as somebody who was really knew a lot about the brain and was into rehabilitation, um, my attitude was, if you can show me what the problem is, then I can try to help it. Um, and I was pretty shocked to find out that, you know, most people and certainly clinicians or professionals or teachers or anybody that I had talked to really didn't know what was happening in the brain. And that's what it all started with me. Um, and so, you know, it started me in the early 90s on, on, you know, a 20-year quest of trying to really understand what was happening in the brain because, for me, I couldn't really look at what could be done, you know, what treatments would be effective or, um, you know, what could cause it, whether it was something that was preventable. 
um, you know, I couldn't, you couldn't answer any of those questions without understanding what the actual problem was. And that's where, you know, my search led me down the road uh, to find this uh, concept known as functional disconnection syndrome, which was the idea that different areas of the brain weren't damaged or injured, but rather there was just a disconnect in their ability to, to talk to one another, their ability to share and integrate information and the most likely uh, areas of the brain to become disconnected were the two hemispheres because mm -hmm. of the way that they developed uh, differently and separately. And that really kind of, uh, when I found that, that, that kind of opened the door for, okay, now, you know, what can we do about it? Now, I'm going to ask you, I guess, a little bit of a technical question. There's a lot of uh, brain science that talking about, talks about how people have lost big chunks of their brain and the brain somehow figures out a way to, to connect around that or to rebuild connections or strengthen other areas to compensate for the areas that have been lost and people with big missing parts of their brain have gone on to go to college and, and do all sorts of wonderful things. Why isn't the brain somehow managing to create these connections then? Yeah, you know, there's a difference between whether something is acquired later on or whether it is something that is developmental. Um, if it's a, a glitch that kind of happens from the beginning. And, and to a certain extent, there is a compensation. Uh, and that's part of the problem, actually, is that what you see. And when I first started looking at this, um, one of the things that stood out in the, in the research was that everybody recognized that these children with all of these disorders had what was known as an unevenness of skills, meaning that there was a, a clear uh, imbalance in their functions where they had certain skills that were um, much better than others. In many cases, uh, kids with ADHD, kids with autism, dyslexia, OCD, they have certain areas that are exceptional. Um, it was widely recognized that they were actually better than average in certain things, but yet they also struggled in other areas. And even when I looked at the early research on dyslexia, two uh, very famous uh, neuro neurologists, Galliberta and Gershwin, in the early uh, 80s, late 70s, they were the first ones to do autopsies on dyslexics. And what they found was that these people who clearly couldn't read and were very bad at language and some math skills, they had exceptional visual spatial skills, and they were very good in certain areas. Um, and when they did the autopsies, they literally found that there was a reverse asymmetry, meaning where most people have an area of the brain called the left planum temporality is larger. That's a language center. Most people, it's larger on the left side of the brain. In these individuals, they all had it larger on the right side of the brain, which is the area of the brain that was the area for visual spatial skills. So they had this imbalance, this physical imbalance in the brain, and it was uh, paralleled by a functional imbalance in their skills, and they even came up with a term for it called the pathology of superiority, which means that they felt like the advanced skill was some sort of compensation for delayed development in another area of the brain. And that is actually, you know, what we're looking at with these kids. The problem is they have areas of the brain that are too strong, and then they have areas of the brain that are too underdeveloped or too weak. And that produces this imbalance, yeah. and that is what leads to these symptoms. Now, we talk about, I think when talking about the brain, it 
maybe it's common knowledge, maybe it's not. It should be anyway that the the left, generally speaking, the left brain controls the right side of the body. The right brain controls the left side of the body. But you talk about some interesting shifts in there or some interesting quirks, I guess, that sometimes, or I guess that a lot of these kids have a tendency to be left-handed and that generally speaking, your dominant side is going to be the whole side, but that that sometimes goes back and forth with these kids. What's going on there? Yeah, you know, um, one of the basic principles in developing any complex system, if you look at complexity theory, is that the first thing that has to happen is you must have uh, specialization or differentiation. So as our brain is developing, um, one of the things that's happening is that the two hemispheres are becoming more and more specialized. And as they become more and more specialized, they become more and more different uh, in what they control and the left side of the brain, or typically one side of the brain, is dominant for volitional motor control or volitional types of, of control of things like vision um, and auditory perception. And so normally one side of the brain will be dominant with hand dominance, dominance, foot dominance, ear and eye dominance. So with most people, you know, the left side of their brain is dominant for language and the right side of their body is dominant for motor skills, for visual skills, for, for reading, for uh, hearing language. And so it all ends up converging on one side of the brain, which is a good thing. Uh, with children who have developmental delays, uh, what happens is that they're not really progressing. They're not maturing. Certain areas of their brain get kind of stuck in their developmental level. And so what we see is that the brain doesn't really become as specialized. The two sides of the brain don't really become very different. Um, you know, one researcher has referred to dyslexia, for instance, as really looking like uh, someone who has two right brains and no left brain. And ADHD kind of looks like they have two left brains and, and no right brain. So what we see is that the fact that the one hemisphere isn't becoming specialized they get this mixed dominance profile where they may have a right-handedness and uh, left foot dominance and right ear dominance and left eye dominance. And especially when the eye and the ear are mixed, um, you know, for reading, for instance, your right eye should lead and your right ear should hear the sound. So when you try and decode and you're trying to match the symbol with the sound, both the eye and the ear should be on the same side and it should go to the same side of the brain where it can merge the sound and the symbol together. You're talking about when you're reading out loud? Um, when you're reading, even even if you're, yes, when you're reading out loud, when you're first starting to learn and start to okay. decode okay. and hear sounds and syllables. Um, and if that doesn't happen, then that can you know create an extra step in trying to integrate that information together, and that in and of itself can affect a child's ability to, to read. Talking with Robert Melillo, who's the author of Disconnected Kids, the groundbreaking brain balance program for children with autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and other neurological disorders. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to keep talking with Robert and get into the groundbreaking brain balance program. I'm Armin Brott. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Robert Melillo, who's the author of Disconnected Kids, and do want to get into the Brain Balance Program and what that is. 
And yeah. how you can do it at home, I think, is one of the most interesting things about the book is that you're you're saying that this is stuff you can you can do by yourself. You don't have to necessarily go to a specialist. How exactly. what what is it? Well, basically, as we said, you know, it all starts with understanding what the problem is. And the problem is this developmental imbalance uh, where one side of the brain is, is kind of stuck, gets stuck in development in children that then either through compensation or through natural gifts, they end up having uh, unusually strong strengths and skills in the opposite sides of the brain. So what we want to do is create a balance because this creates a processing imbalance where one side of the brain is literally processing information at a much faster speed so that the two sides of the brain can't can't synchronize and integrate information. So our job is to try to identify the weakened areas on one side of the brain or the underdeveloped areas and through very targeted brain stimulation exercises and activities we can cause those areas to grow and as they grow they become faster the neurons become bigger and they have faster impulses and when they get fast enough they can then synchronize and link up with the other hemisphere and that effectively can help correct the problem on a long-term basis so what we do is we start off with uh, in the book and even in our centers with uh, asking the parents to assess their own child to, to find out. Because even though we're talking about right hemisphere and left hemisphere, there are you know hundreds of different centers that, can be, that are specialized on each side of the brain. So we need to identify each child's makeup of their strengths and weaknesses. And the, the makeup of this imbalance is different. It's slightly different. So we need to really identify what are the weakened areas. So we have the parent assess them and look at various motor skills. We look at sensory processing skills like visual processing and, um, and vestibular in ear processing, touch processing, mm-hmm. light processing. And then we find out where they're weakened. And then we put together exercises in combination. Uh, so we do motor activities, sensory stimulation, cognitive-based exercises, academic based activities, sure. and then we support that all with diet and nutrition as well. I want to just go back just a little bit. I, I can't go through the whole thing. The, there's a, a really extensive checklist that goes on for probably, I guess, about eight pages. Give us a couple of examples of some issues, you know, not touching, not wanting to be touched were, were, was one thing. Uh, you know, how, how does that affect or how is that related to a particular side of the brain? Yeah, all of the uh, the... the sensory processing that we do um, is really distributed differently with the right and the left side of the brain, specializing in different parts of it. So we hear all the time that kids have, you know, sensory processing deficits, like auditory processing deficit or visual processing deficit or tactile. But it's really not a deficit. What we're seeing is an imbalance because what we see is, for instance, the left side of the brain is more specific with detailed type of visual processing. it finds the details in anything, and it's very good with sequential visual processing. Um, the right side of the brain is holistic. It sees the whole picture. Um, so, for instance, the left side of the brain is good at looking at symbols and letters and words or individual words. The right brain puts those words together and gets the, the main idea of a story. Um, or the, the right side of the brain is more looking at nonverbal tone of voice. Um, you know, inflection, things like that. Um, the, the sound issues, again, the way we process sound, the left side of the brain 
hears more high-frequency sounds that come very rapidly in a sequence as if we're reading or, or speaking, whereas the right side hears more low-frequency sounds like the tone of the voice and the emotionality. Um, even with touch, the left side of the brain is more responsible for light touch, and the right side of the brain is really more about deep touch. So, for instance, you take a kid with autism, uh, and this is well documented, that they are exceptionally good at what we call local visual processing. They're incredibly good at picking out detail, but they get stuck in the detail, and they can't see the big picture. So they're very poor at reading comprehension or main idea or pragmatics. Um, they're hypersensitive to high-frequency sound, but yet they, they don't hear, literally don't respond to low-frequency sound. They hate to be touched lightly, but they crave deep touch because they're craving stimulation to the right side of their brain, but because the left side of the brain is processing it so well, they're hypersensitive to those things. So the key is that we need to be able to understand that, and we need to be able to give them what they're craving, which is we need to stimulate the underactive or underdeveloped areas of their brain to create this balance. And when we do, uh, you know, then they're, they're, all their processing gets back more towards normal. So how would you go about stimulating the underdeveloped part of the brain? For in Just the example that you gave, an autistic kid who doesn't like to be touched lightly but likes to be touched firmly, does that mean that you're, you're going to start touching the child lightly so that he builds up an acceptance of it, or, or how, how does that work? Yeah, no, and that's a good, you bring up a very good point. Some, because the, some of the approaches in treating autistic kids is that you try to desensitize their hypersensitivity. Right, right. Uh, by, by using that, like by, get, by using high-frequency fre, high sound. Um, I believe that that's a mistake because what you're doing is you're stimulating the, o the overactive side. Um, the way to inhibit the hyperactivity is to stimulate the other side of the brain, which is underactive. So what we do is, like, for instance, with touch, we would give them deep touch type of activities. We would, you know, give them uh, activities that would, that's why a lot of ki children with autism will wear things like weighted vests or you do joint compressions or certain types of stretching or uh, deep type of, of touch, uh, which stimulates that right side of the brain, and then that naturally inhibits the, the left side hypersensitivity. So I don't know if you ever knew Temple Grandin. Oh, yeah, she's got uh, the hugging machine. Yeah she, yeah, she wrote a book about how she made uh, a squeeze machine, she called it, which is because she would craze, crave that deep touch, so she would make a machine that literally would squeeze her. So we can do that type of activities. Parents can, it's like hugging your child. It's basically squeezing them and then letting go and squeezing them and letting go. Um, and those are things that stimulate those deep joint muscle receptors. Now, are you actually rebuilding the brain or making a physical connection between the right and left hemisphere, or are you just kind of beefing things up where they are? No, we're actually changing the brain. I mean, everybody is now kind of familiar with the term of neuroplasticity. Uh, and the idea that the brain can change based on stimulation and training, uh, physically and chemically change. So it's like building muscles. Uh, when you train a muscle, when you train specifically for a specific sport, you literally train the muscle and you train that skill uh, in that area, and, and it changes your body. It, cha it builds muscles. It builds proteins. 
in the brain, when we use the brain, when we stimulate areas of the brain, we literally cause the brain cells to grow larger. We stimulate genes that will produce protein that will lead to an increased size and efficiency of the neurons, actually creating new connections and increasing the endurance by increasing mitochondria and things like that. And it's been shown that um, it happens very rapidly, that after even an hour after you learn something new, uh, we can measure changes in gray matter in the brain. Right. So these things happen very, very quickly. I want to just have you, just we have a minute or so left, but talk real briefly about how you can change behavioral issues. I can see it's, it's a little easier, I would imagine, you, know, you can stimulate something physically, but how do you modify behavior using this method? Well, behavior is a product of the brain, as everything else is. Emotions are a product of the brain. Um, and especially, you know, we have two basic platforms of all human behavior, and that's approach and avoidance. The left side of the brain governs approach behavior, and the right side of the brain governs avoidance or withdrawal behavior. And that's kind of how the two hemispheres act. Um, and then when we look at emotions, we have emotions that are distributed in the left brain and the right brain. The left brain is more of these positive approach emotions, things like happy, anger, and surprise. The right side of the brain is more sad, disgust, um, avoidance, fear, shame, um, the right side of the brain is the more social, emotional side of the brain. So the ability to understand nonverbal communication, empathy, to be able to build relationships. The right side of the brain is more the relationship side of the brain. So what we see is that children with right side developmental delays like autism or ADHD or Asperger's, you know, they have lack of empathy. They have very poor nonverbal communication. They have, uh, they have anger outbursts because the left brain is is too strong. They have obsessive compulsive behavior because the left brain by its nature is obsessive and compulsive and impulsive. So without the right brain balancing it out, we get these obsessive behaviors. But when we balance the brain out, when the right brain naturally gets stronger, it naturally inhibits those and it dampens that and it controls our behavior so we have a normal balance of behavioral approach and avoidance or positive and negative emotions in an appropriate way. Um, so really the best way to modify behavior is by changing the brain. Now a lot of these kids will also develop secondary behaviors because of their primary problem um, and those may need to be dealt with with counseling or behavioral management. I have another book called Reconnected Kids which is really about how do we deal with the behaviors mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and manage those. Robert Melillo, it's M-E-L-I-L-L-O, is the author of Disconnected Kids, the groundbreaking brain balance program for children with autism, ADHD, dyslexia, and other neurological disorders. Robert, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you so much. It was great being with you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.